This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, a lot of movement in the drug business this morning and not unexpected in the sense that this was an asset that was for sale. We're talking about Otesla, but it's sort of deal-making, begetting deal-making, I feel like, is what we're seeing here. Rebecca Spaulding, uh, biotech reporter for Bloomberg, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Rebecca, great to see you. I feel like the last time you were here, you sort of portended, uh, you foretold that some of this was going to happen. Walk us through the the pieces here, because it's a little bit complicated. Yeah, well, happy Merger Monday. I love Merger Monday. Um, Yeah, so this came from the Bristol Cell Gene mega deal we got at the beginning of the year, the $74 billion whopper. Um, And as a part of that deal, what was sort of surprising is we found out a few weeks ago that the FTC was going to make Bristol Cell Gene divest Otesla, this drug for psoriasis. Uh, Bristol has a psoriasis drug in its pipeline that looks really promising. Uh, But what's surprising is that companies have multiple drugs for one condition often mm-hmm. and Otesla was a big reason why Bristol went out and spent 74 billion dollars to buy Celgene so that was surprising now once they said they were going to do that we knew that there was expect there was expected to be a se- sale Amgen seemed like a likely buyer people had thought Gilead might take it there right. was probably a few uh, people who took took a look at this thing ultimately Amgen got it for 13.4 billion dollars uh, so not a bad price for... Uh, That's a lot. It feels like I, a lot. I think it's a lot. People are saying that it's expensive. People really? are thinking oh, Tesla might go for $9 billion, somewhere in there. So they certainly got a good price uh, for, for this drug that will help them pay down some of that debt. And is this right? I'm looking at all the stocks. They're all up? They're all up. People seem to like it. I mean, okay. the other thing about this is that Amgen has this huge pile of cash that they really haven't done that much with except buy back their own stock. And so people have wondered, when is Amgen going to do something? Maybe they'll do a mega deal. This is the one of the biggest deals Amgen has ever done, if you can believe it, for one drug. Right. Uh, so it's a little bit of a sleepy, big company doing kind of a deal that everyone knew was going to get done this year. Well, and you point out to that exact point, you point out in your story that there was speculation that they might do a big deal before and they ended up just buying back a bunch of shares. Exactly. They had about $40 billion in cash after tax reform, which was one of the biggest cash hoards in the industry. Uh, They trade at some of the highest premiums for a large biotech. Their market cap is well over $100 billion. They've done pretty well relative to their peers, certainly better than Celgene, which was one of their peers. Uh, But again, they really haven't done that much. They've bought back $10 billion in shares. Uh, They are known to being very... uh, smart when it comes to financial engineering their balance sheet is always looks really good Mm -hmm. um so again uh it's interesting that they're buying a drug not a company uh and we'll see what what happens that's exactly what i find interesting i also wonder all right so what does this do this acquisition do for amgen amgen and what does it do for the resulting cell gene bristol myers you know uh connection there or, or merger if you will i mean what does this 
how does this change it? So what's really interesting is that this drug will complement one of Amgen's uh, existing blockbusters, Enbrel, really well. It's a psoriasis drug. It's going to face biosimilar competition going forward. And so Amgen, like a lot of its peers, needs to come up with the next bestseller. So uh, Otesla fits in really nicely with that. For Bristol cell gene, it's interesting. Bristol has this drug in its pipeline. It's called a TIC2 inhibitor. That's the kind of drug it is. It's still in research, but people are wild for this drug. They think it's going to be amazing. It looks really good. Early data looks good. A billion dollar plus drug, hopefully. I think that people would hope that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's for more severe patients is, mm. is the difference here. Oh, Tesla's a pill. It's a little more convenient. Uh, probably not for the people who are true, uh, you know, hardcore psoriasis sufferers. But that will be interesting. It will be a big competitor. What uh, does it say about the antitrust environment? I'm just thinking about other drug companies who might think about doing some kind of deal. I mean, what does this say about what antitrust authorities required mm-hmm. in order for Celgene and BM, uh, Bristol-Myers to go ahead with their deal? That's a really insightful question. I think actually investors are complacent when it comes to the FTC, because the FTC is getting much tougher yeah. on biopharma. Even the fact that they required Bristol to divest Otesla was shocking. Now, another uh, deal that's before the FTC, which people thought pedestrian deal it's going to get done was Roche buying Spark Therapeutics a gene therapy deal that has been delayed several times and it's not yet clear that regulators will clear that and so clearly the FTC is taking a harder line with biopharma Mm -hmm. Um, what form that takes in the future we'll we'll have to see and I'm even curious Amgen does have a psoriasis drug so if Bristol had to divest a psoriasis drug what makes Amgen different that will be my question well interesting too you point this out in your story 8 million million people in the United States affected by psoriasis. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that it was that, big, big, market, of a, right? that yeah. big of a market. Unfortunately, it's a, it's a really big market. Mm-hmm. So obviously a lot of money, uh, research, and, and clearly some, some M&A dollars uh, going here as well. All right, Rebecca Spalding, biotech reporter for Bloomberg on this Merger Monday story. Great explanation. Amgen yeah. buying Celgene in a $13.4 billion deal paving the way for that big mama deal to go through. That big mama deal. So the U.S. Department of Agriculture notes that in the U.S. alone, food waste is estimated at between 30 to 40 percent of the food supply. Wow. So our next guest's company, while they're working on extending the shelf life of food, here to explain is Aidan Moat. He is CEO at Hazel Technologies. Uh, He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He's based in Chicago, but as I mentioned, here in our New York studio. He's from Atlanta originally. We need to point that out, too. (laughs) There's an org chart to put this all together. Uh, Great to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So Hazel Technologies is a company um, that was founded to prevent spoilage waste and produce by extending the shelf life of fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, we do it using sophisticated biochemistry, but the real twist there um, is that we like to think about chemistry from a sustainability perspective. We like to call ourselves sustainability chemists. And the idea is we don't want to add new chemicals to the food supply. We actually want to reduce reliance on chemical inputs overall. So this isn't better things for better living through chemistry 2.0. That's essentially the way of thinking about it, yeah. <laughs> Just checking. Nope, absolutely correct. So how does it work? How does it work? Well, we are able to control the biochemistry of produce uh, by controlling the atmosphere around that produce. So uh, most of our products are uh, what we call active packaging inserts. They go into any standard commercial pack out of produce from, you know, one pound clamshells all the way up to entire storage vaults that are filled with up to millions of pounds of produce. 
and we modify the atmosphere, uh, atmosphere by releasing vapor phase active ingredients into it that allows us to uh, interact with the hormones of the produce and actually shut down its metabolic response, meaning we can literally put it to sleep as it, as it travels through the supply chain. Um, so that allows us to preserve all the very important quality parameters, texture, flavor, uh, aroma, color, uh, while not actually adding any new contact right. chemistry to the system. All right. So as we were reading up on you, I know that there's one thing that jumped out to both of us, which is you have a deal with Mission Avocado. We are <laughs> avocado freaks here on this show. Nice. Um, Keep eating them. Carol goes to a very specific place in San Francisco, and I think only goes to San Francisco for this one specific avocado toast. Our but, boss may be listening. But in any case... I feel like that is a prime example of a, a – it's a fruit, right? It is a fruit. Okay. Uh, science it, is golden. Yeah, there you go. Uh, a fruit that this could really come in handy because it feels like there's about six seconds where an avocado is really the ultimate ripeness. Yeah, I mean you're, you're hitting the, the nail on the head there. It's such a complicated supply chain. Um, and, and people have figured out all kinds of cool tricks, but like a lot of places in commercial agriculture, you know, you're, you have this strategy where you go, okay, well, we're going to pick it underripe. We're going to ripen it under forcing conditions later on. Right. That's going to impact nutritional quality, flavor quality, and so forth for the consumer. So we took it the other way around. We said, look, we have a technology where you can take fruits that are closer to the right ripe stage that you want to be eating, that have more nutritional content, better flavor, uh, basically an improved consumer experience, and we're going to preserve those the same way that standard commercial supply chains have, have arisen to protect these lower-quality fruits and vegetables. So wait, just because I'm slow, um, what exactly, though, is in the vapor that you're putting into these big containers? You're so, saying it's not chemicals? Well, everything's a chemical, right, at the end of the day. So okay. produce ages, for example, I'll give you an example. Right. Produce ages uh, in the process of emitting ethylene. So Correct. ethylene is a naturally produced hormone. Uh, it's in the atmosphere at concentrations between 1 and 30 or 40 ppm, um, and it triggers uh, biological processes. So right. in the presence of ethylene, produce begins to senesce, to age, uh, and then eventually to go bad. So one example of how we work is with a type of compound called an ethylene inhibitor. So it's essentially what we call a biomimic. It's exactly the same chemistry as ethylene, but we've added a little twist to it that allows us to, instead of triggering aging processes, we can actually shut them down in exactly the same way. So who's your customers right now? We predominantly work with growers and packers, so it's folks that are harvesting produce, packing it up, and selling it downstream into the distribution and retail channels. Uh, but that's led us to some traction among the retailers who are very interested in how right. to adapt this kind of product and branding to show that they're doing the best they possibly can to enhance the consumer eating experience. And so what – like take us all the way out around the curve here. Like what does this look like in your wildest dream? Like this is something that every, that – shows up in every grocery store in, in some form or fashion. How do you penetrate this massive like food supply chain? So I think it's actually more than that, even. I, I think actually the biggest vision that we have is a world in which our technologies touch every segment of the supply chain from the, the production steps to the distribution steps to even the consumer and storage steps. Wow. We're the first company that has come along to create something that harnesses the power of this efficient biochemistry but can also modularize it and put it into the smallest packages that we possibly can. I mean, we're talking about a sachet that's the size of a sugar packet, a mm -hmm. couple, of, couple of inches, uh, and weighs about a quarter of a gram, is enough to extend the shelf life of 40 to 50 pounds of produce by up to three times its standard shelf life. But what you're telling me, though, why is, it, is everybody, wouldn't everybody want to use this? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> What's holding people back? 
we haven't developed it all yet. <laughs> and that's it. You're the de- so when will it all be developed? Well, we're moving into that right now. So we've already we've already put together more than 100 pilot customers at this point. Uh, we've okay. touched more than 15 different crops in 12 different countries. Uh, we're now working directly with retailers to not yeah. only bring this to the retail shelves, but then I think about how we're going to do that beyond the retail shelf and go yeah. to the consumer. All right. Come back and give us an update. We're clearly fascinated by all this. Aiden Moat is the chief executive officer of Hazel Technologies based in Chicago. Very, very cool to uh, get a sense of what you're doing. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. These are the days when anything goes. Every day is a winding road. A winding road. I might even say, Cheryl Crow were to remake this song, a sharp curving road, Carol Masser, <laughs> yes. when it comes to uh, the trade war. I was lucky enough to catch up with Sean Donnan in person last week. In Washington, he's back with us from our 991 studio where he and I were hanging out in Washington, D.C. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. So, Sean, I have to say things move so quickly. Luckily, we can all subscribe to your Twitter feed. Uh, that's very helpful to me, at least through the weekend as all of this stuff is moving. And I have to say, through all the headlines over the weekend, I sort of forgot about this fact that President Trump on his way out – ordered, quote-unquote, all U.S. companies to essentially stop doing business in China, which I think, since Carol Master is back, I would describe as a, wait, what? Sort of moment. (laughs) So help us understand what's going on there. Yeah, can we call it the Whiplash Highway? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Totally. Ooh, Whiplash Highway, that's good. I like it. It's Look, we we forget so often just how wild – some of the things we are hearing when it comes to the trade wars are. And for the President of the United States to hereby order, that was his phrasing, uh, a U.S. businesses to look at alternatives to China and, and effectively unwind decades of investment, billions of dollars of investment uh, in China is, is, is a pretty remarkable point. And it, it gets at something that uh, we need to keep in mind when it comes to the president and that he has this instinct to to escalate uh, whenever he's confronted with uh, a situation or whenever someone's pushing back, certainly. But he also has this ability to to kind of consider these things that are more extreme than anyone, any of his predecessors would have have, uh, uh, considered. So this in particular relates to something called IEPA, the International Economic Emergency, uh, Emergencies Protection Act, I believe it's called. It was passed in 1977. It gives uh, U.S. presidents the power to declare economic emergencies. And president followed up his tweet on Friday with another on Saturday, pointing to exactly this law, saying it gave him this power to order U.S. companies to stop doing business effectively with China. And we heard that again from him today in a, in, in a press conference. And the, the markets are, are, are really seizing today on some more positive comments from uh, from the president. But he did say, I want a deal that's going to favor the United States. And if it doesn't favor the United States, then we're going to stop doing business with China. Again, this kind of command economy kind of kind of statement that you just don't expect from from a U.S. president. So, Sean, I feel like the question is then, you know, can the president actually do something to stop companies from doing business in China, or can he just make it kind of increasingly difficult to do new business in China? Like, what can they, what can the administration really do? 
So both is the answer. Uh, and he clearly has been doing the latter already through his tariffs. That is all about encouraging companies to pull their supply chains out of China. And we know that companies are doing that as costs go up. But he also has this power under this act to declare an economic emergency and effectively ban companies from doing business with a certain country. This is the act that is used to justify U.S. sanctions on Iran, on North Korea, and those sanctions ban U.S. businesses from doing so. Were you to apply this to China, the world's second largest economy, one of the U.S.'s biggest trading partners, it would be hugely more disruptive than anything you can imagine uh, related to sanctions with North Korea. And that's, that's the issue. But does he have the power? Absolutely. And it makes me think that the European zone and everybody else will say, okay, thank you very much, because yeah. we'll just pick up we'll uh, just the take slack. It. <laughs> uh, so, Sean, got to ask you, sort of, you know, fast-forwarding to today and even over the last few hours as we've seen the market start to digest everything we heard from the G7, from President Trump and others. You obviously had the sort of Iranian surprise with Macron inviting the foreign minister uh, there. But trade certainly was top of the agenda. The market is trading up, presumably, on this notion that things are a little bit more optimistic. You know, President Trump saying, you know, China called and wants to restart negotiations. How do you read it? Should the market be uh, expressing this level of optimism? Look, it, it's if you step back uh, and look at the pattern that we've seen over the past two and a half years that the president's been in office, he often in these trade wars has followed an escalation like the one that we saw on Friday with a, a calmer day, a kind of happy day, uh, an, an effort where to calm things down to try and send a more positive message out there. And I think that's what we've seen today. We have tried all morning to try and figure out what these calls were that the president has talked about. And in his press conference, he talked about numerous calls. We can't get anyone else in the administration to, to kind of tell us exactly what those calls were or to detail when they took place. Uh, but the president does seem to have seized on a speech by Liu He, who is the vice premier of China and is their top negotiator in these trade talks, which came last night, our time. And in that speech, the vice premier talked about a calm resolution and how China mm. was looking for something like that. And Trump, in his press conference, again and again pointed to that speech. And we're hearing from aides that he really took that statement uh, as a meaningful one. The thing is, you talk to China experts and they look at that speech and they kind of scratch their head and this is kind of boilerplate stuff. This is a lot of what China has been saying throughout. So it's really hard to read how we've actually moved um, very far in the past 24 hours or or in the past 96 hours. Uh, it, you know, we are kind of where we were, and that is in a pattern of escalation, and that's how we're going to wrap up this summer. We're in a worse place on Labor Day than we were on Memorial Day. Um, I guess what I wonder about is at this point, Sean, is I think most people agree going into this, going back, I guess, when Trump took over the White House, that, yes, indeed, we need to kind of rework our U.S.-China trade deal, that it was old, it needed to be, you know, we needed stuff to reflect kind of where we are here in 2019. As an American, I keep wondering, is the administration really going to get a deal that makes more sense here today in 2019? Well, if you listen to the president, he insists over and over again that this is this is the way you get the deal, is you do what he's 
doing and you raise the pressure and that forces uh, China to, to bend. If you listen to China experts, they say it's just not working. Uh, and we're not seeing any sign that the Chinese are, are going to come with any last minute concessions. If anything, we're seeing signs from Beijing that they're actually hardening their line and that a meaningful deal may be less likely than it was just a few months ago. Unbelievable. Yeah. All right. Well, we know we'll be uh, catching up with you soon. Really appreciate the time, as always. Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg, also a contributor to Bloomberg New Economy. He joined us from our 99.1 studio in Washington, D.C. We've noted how health care is one of the big issues among the Democratic presidential hopefuls. And as noted in a Businessweek story, all the Democratic health care proposals seem to have one big problem. Let's find out exactly what that is. Jillian Goodman is politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek. She joins us along with Jill Weber, Weber excuse me, editor of the magazine, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York City. So, Jillian, let's kick it off with you. So what's the one big problem? The one big problem is that the, the healthcare industry doesn't want a public option, and you know you have people like Joe so healthcare indi- the healthcare industry is the problem, right? <laughs> you know, and it's not you know we talk about Republicans being this huge obstacle, and specifically Senate Republicans. You'll never get anything through the Senate, but really, before we even get there, when you're talking about the design of the legislation, it's the healthcare industry. You know, we saw this with Obamacare; they they killed a public option in the Affordable Care Act, and that's not. That hasn't changed in the last, you know, decade. So we're going to see uh, a lot of industry opposition to, to all of these proposals. And I think it really boils down to this Medicare for all phrase that we keep hitting, you know, just as great, uh, great talking point when you're in mm-hmm. front of a big crowd and it gets a sounds ton. Good, right? Sounds yeah. great. Great soundbite gets people clapping. And then it's like, right. How do you how would you <laughs> right. actually do that? Well, in the idea that we've been talking about Medicare for all for now four years, it's changed the baseline of how we talk about reforming health care. And so in the context of Medicare for all, you know, a public option suddenly seems like the moderate choice. But right. as from the industry perspective, it's still like nuclear. And so how is this playing out across a Democratic primary field that is even with a couple people? dropping out still very large and some of the most powerful voices among among it Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders especially pretty far left right I mean uh, Kamala Harris has been criticized for trying to you know satisfy everybody with her health care plan and you know by Biden included but you know like you so these proposals like Medicare for All, they're much more salient for people. It's a really good selling point. People get really riled up about it. And so it's been hard for the people who are more moderate to stand out. I mean, you know, we have a chart in the story that we did showing, you know, how many uh, people's issue tweets are about health care. And the most moderate people are at the top of that chart. You're looking yeah, at John Delaney. One. You're looking at Michael, Michael Bennett. You're looking at Steve Bullock. And these are not the guys. Like, none of them have made the next debate. These are not the guys that right. are getting all of the attention. And, I mean, I, I think that, you know, Biden and Sanders, Sanders outranks Biden by a little bit in this when you look at it. But then if, I think that the great one is Warren, mm-hmm. who's third from the bottom in terms of actually tweeting about healthcare related mm-hmm. issues, even though she's sort of, you know, again, she and Sanders are the two that have sort of been known for kind of like pushing this a bit. Mm-hmm. Which might be, uh, you know, a little insight there of like she might know how radioactive this thing is in terms of actually getting it through. Well, and what's so interesting amid all of this is consistently healthcare is one of the mm-hmm. issues that is like number one or number two 
when it comes to voters ahead of immigration, ahead of national security, like ahead of just about everything. And yet, if you have the leading candidates not talking, I mean, there's a, a little bit of a disconnect there. Well, and that's some of the criticism that y- you see in how people are going about designing their health care proposals yeah. is that it's going to give, you know, Trump and Republicans fodder when we do get to the general election that, you know, if they've built up all this enthusiasm on an impossible proposal, you know, how do you how do you campaign on that? The big the big takeaway here, I don't think any best case scenario for Democrats, as we write in the story, is that, you know, you win the White House, you hold the House, regain the Senate. But you would still probably fall short of the majority that you'd need to ram this thing yeah. through. So I think best case scenario for Democrats, this thing ain't happening for four years. So it's basically effectively a non-starter, if you think of the phrase Medicare for all. That, well, it's just not going to happen. And let's not forget, I mean, the health care lobbying is tremendous. And I remember mm-hmm. when the Clintons were trying to do something way back when and how that just didn't happen. But this is a group in terms of lobbying efforts and lobbying money. i you just didn't date yourself. That's okay. Don't worry. We love you I, re- I read in really deeply. <laughs> I remember That's it what too. I did here. <laughs> but I mean, it just is a reminder, right, that the, the, the health care companies, whether it's pharma, you know, pick your, pick, you know, your aspect of it. Well, I mean, it speaks to the strategy. Make it radioactive. Yes. Right? Make it radioactive so that anybody who gets anywhere close to it can't touch it or come yeah. up with a solution for it. I mean, yeah. one thing that I'm curious about, so we talked to a group called Partnership for America's Healthcare, Healthcare Futures, excuse me, that, uh, you know, they said that they what they want to do is really try to educate people, you know, the 40% of Americans who say they are interested in a Medicare for all thing. And I'm sort of wondering if that goes both ways. You know, we still have more than a year of a campaign left. You mm-hmm. know, is there still an opportunity for Sanders or Warren or whoever winds up in the with the nomination to educate voters yeah about a Medicare for all and and sort of counteract a lot of that lobbying. All right. Really good stuff. Jillian Goodman, politics editor for Bloomberg Business Week. The story, it's by Sahil Kapoor. It's in the magazine this week. All the Democratic health care proposals have one big problem. Also, thanks to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close on this Monday. Hillary Kramer is back with us, President and Chief Investment Officer over at ANG Capital Research. She's back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York City. It is not a quiet Monday in August. I feel like mm-hmm. August has become the new, I don't know, October, September, which is the really volatile month that we're supposed to have. Um I want to get into some of your stock picks, but first, just let's get your macro perspective uh, of the trade back and forth and the impact it's having on the trade. The market is really being whipsawed around. Again, it's all this emotion. You know, it's just too many, too many tweets, too many unknowns. We're depending so much, Carol, on the Federal Reserve. It's as if the Federal Reserve is the determinant as to where the stock market go and that they're responsible, the Fed. And they're um, saying, hey, guys, it's a political <laughs> battle. I, we don't really play with that. Exactly. And at this point, we may not even see a 25 
basis point rate cut. You know, I mean, it, it is possible because you also have, uh, I mean, it's like the sandbox in some ways. I mean, you can only be beaten up so much if you're the Federal Reserve. You know, you're supposed to be an independent body. But I think ongoing, I see the market as, you know, stabilizing S&P 3000. We could certainly regain that again because at the end of the day, you know, I think the PMIs will be above 50 probably. Um, we're seeing some good action, um, even on housing, like the XHB, you know, the, the housing indices looks pretty good. It's just, I think that uh, a lot of the NASDAQ is overextended at this point. And recession fears overblown? Absolutely. They, they are overblown. That doesn't take into account, though, you know, you can always have some factor that just shakes the market, you know, that's kind of the tipping point that brings it down. But, uh you know, we have these great stocks out there. You know, I mean, you, I, have you been buying on the pullbacks? Yes, yes. Aggressively we, so? Yes, we've been actually doing a lot of options, uh, hmm. and that's been a big help. Um, really, yeah. on the indices, I mean, we've been really playing those. We play a lot of the, the utility uh, utility calls, utility puts. I mean, with this kind of market and this kind of volume, it's been an opportunity for that. But for an actual investor who's looking to make some money in this market, there's too much short-term volatility in the algo trades. I mean, I think one is really better off in a lot of these, these value names. I mean, I brought some other names as well, but, you know, we... We really look at like big lots, BIG, yeah. you know, as a trades at five and a half times earnings and, you know, single digit digit growth is just fine with me. We love Valvoline, VVV, uh, almost a 2.2% uh, dividend yield there. And Ingredion, the old corn products, that's another one that we really, really love. And we think What's the ticker on that one? ING. It used to be corn products, but they're in everything because it's the starches, it's yeah. the gums. I mean, they are everywhere from the drinks to the nutritional products. And a company uh, like Ingredion has just, you know, really been struggling uh, you know, I mean, they're down. What are they? Twenty-one after being at, up around uh, nowhere. They're they're at five point one billion dollar market cap, and you get a three point two percent dividend yield, and the stock is off about thirty five percent. It's big lots here that's at twenty one, that it was at mm-hmm. forty. Right. So so we really look at those, and we see we see a lot of opportunity in in those value plays. And if you look at like we're looking at the Russell three thousand value versus the Russell three thousand. Um, uh, growth and it's 19 percent, you know, kind of last 52 weeks growth on on um, on the growth stocks mm-hmm. <clears throat> versus the value companies. So we're really we take our money with the Coopas and the Shopify's and we go in and out. But for investors, you're better off enjoying like a 5.7 percent dividend yield on something like Big Lots. So some deal making that we were following earlier in the show in the pharma space. How does that make you feel about some opportunities there? Because generally, I feel like Big Pharma is a space you like. I, oh, yes. I like Big Pharma. Um, certainly, I like some of these valid companies like GW Pharmaceuticals, these cannabis plays that, yeah. that, that could actually be acquisition targets. But it's actually very interesting, this Bristol-Myers um, and Celgene and the forced selling yeah. you know, of Otesla. Forced selling is, at a rich price. You know, I mean, it's, it's really interesting, especially in this administration. I mean, we are in a Republican administration, so it's kind of fascinating that something like that would even happen. But I still see, and we're, we're, we're in good shape here because there are a lot of investors 
investors who are really knee deep in the Bristol Myers, which is finally getting a little bit of a lift today, you know, and uh, across the board, you know, it's been a really rough time for everyone who's in everything, you know, from Pfizer to Johnson, Johnson, Johnson had, you know, they're kind of struggling with the opioid news. But I think that investors just have to be patient and calm and realize that, you know, with as long as we have a lack of news that shakes the market, you're going to see, SM, you know, an S&P 3000. It's next year, Carol. That's what I worry. 2020. You do. Oh, oh, I think I think there's no question about it. When you look at the numbers, Monmouth University uh, came out with their polling and, you know, like, Biden, Warren, Sanders, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're ending up being kind of a strong block there. They really are. And depending so you how- think if 2020, if it goes the way of the Democrats, you think that's going to be bad for what, the business environment and for the market? Yes. It, initially, it'll bring the markets down. But I think if we really have those particular candidates in, we are going to see, you know, a rollback of some of the, some of the tax breaks that we've had. Look, the financials, it, it actually ties in in many ways with a 10-year yield on bonds, you know, and at 1.5%. And, you know, are we going to go negative if, if um, you know, President Trump goes his way? You know, yeah, we actually could. The financials are going to be in really bad shape and, and the market could be brought down. And that's an opening for, you know, Senator Warren, for example, to, to really come out here and, and and bring in some of the reforms that she has right. advocated for, and it will shake the market. It will be a problem because a lot of what we've seen in earnings, which have been fine, actually kind of, you know, really stable, except for some of those industrials out there and those kind of worried about, you know, the but China they're contracting, trade. And, right, because that's what we heard from Dave earlier, right? right? I mean, it's not expected to be a, a great quarter. Next quarter. Yeah. Next quarter. Right. I mean, it could be problematic, but more in 2020 with the expectations, because that's what stock prices are all, you know, based on what future expectations might be. So they could come down. They could come down pretty quickly. And I love that you say, or you would like to remind us that a recession only lasts a year on average and the market picks up three months early. So it's not the end of the world. So it's going to be over before we probably realize it. Yeah. Before we get to the Hamptons again next summer, it'll all be over. All right. Hillary Kramer is president. President and Chief Investment Officer of A&G Capital Research here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.